Chapter Seventeen of Mr. Incool's Misadventure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Incool's Misadventure by Edgar Saltis. Chapter Seventeen Maida's Nuptials. For some time after Lennox had gone, there was much excitement at the Capuchins, but gradually the excitement wore itself out, as excitement always does. Baccarat, for that night at least, had lost its allurement. The habitues dispersed, some to other clubs, some to their homes, and soon the great rooms were deserted by all, save one deaf man, who, undisturbed by the commotion, had given himself up to the task of memorizing Sarcy's Foyerton. Among the earliest to leave was Mr. Incool. Come, he said to Blydenburg, you've seen enough for one evening. And Blydenburg got into his coat and followed his companion to the street. They walked some distance before either of them spoke. But when they reached the hotel at which Blydenburg was stopping, that gentleman halted at an adjacent lamppost. I must say, Incool, he began, and I hope you will take it very kindly. I must say that I think you might have left that matter for someone else to discover. Why, hang it all, Lee is a friend of your wife's, and you know all his people. To you the money was nothing. Really, Incool, damn me if I don't think it's hard-hearted. I don't care that for what those frog-eaters say. The cards you said were marked. Don't weigh with me in the least. No, not an atom. It is my opinion that the young man was just as innocent as a child unborn. No, sir, you can't make me believe that he, that he, I hate to say the word, that he cheated. Why, man alive, I had my eyes on him the whole time. A better-looking fellow never breathed, and he just chucked out the cards one after another, without so much as looking at them. It seemed to me that he didn't care a rap whether he won or lost. I put down a louis or two myself, and he never noticed it. He left the whole thing to the croupier, and now that I come to think of it, Yes, I know, Mr. Incool interrupted. I am sorry myself. Well, then, I'll be shot if you look so. Good night to you. And with that, Blydenburg stamped up to the hotel, rang the bell, and slammed the door behind him. Mr. Incool walked on. The annoyance of his friend affected him like a tonic. He continued his way refreshed. Presently, he reached a cab stand. The clock marked 11.50. He had other duties, and he let himself into an urbane, and told the man to drive to the Parc Monceau. On arriving, he tossed a coin to the cabby, and entered the house. In the vestibule, a footman started up from a nap. Mr. Incool went up to the floor above, and waited, the door ajar. For a little space, he heard the man moving about, whispering to a fellow footman. But soon the whispering ceased. Evidently, the men had gone. Assured of this, he opened a drawer and took from it a steel instrument, one that in certain respects resembled a key. The haft, however, was unusually large. The end was not blunt, but hollow, yet fashioned like a pincer, and the projecting tongue which, in the case of an ordinary key, serves to lock and unlock, was absent. This he put in his pocket. He went out into the hall and listened again. The house was very quiet. He made sure that the footman had really gone, and walking on tiptoe to his wife's door, rapped ever so noiselessly. 
is it you harmon he heard her ask had he wished he had no time to answer a key turned in the lock and the door was opened and before him maida stood smiling a silent welcome to his first visit to her room as he entered and closed the door her lips parted she would have spoken but something in his face repelled her the smile fell from her face and the words remained unuttered he stood a moment rubbing his hands frigidly as were he cold yet the room was not chilly there was no fire in the grate but two gas fixtures gave out sufficient heat to warm it unassisted and then presently he looked at her she had thrown herself on a lounge near the hearth and was certainly most fair to see her white gown had been replaced by one of looser cut her neck and arms were no longer bare but one foot shod in fur that the folds of the skirt left visible was stockingless and the wonder of her hair was unconfined he found a chair and seated himself before her madam he said at last i am here at your request the girl started as were she stung you were obliging enough this evening to inform me that we had come into our own what is it his eyebrows were raised and about his thin lips was just the faintest expression of contempt what is it into which we have come maida grew whiter than the whitest ermine she moved her hand as would she answer but he motioned her to be silent i will tell you he continued in his measured way and you will pardon me if the telling is long before it was my privilege to make your acquaintance i was not as you know a bachelor my wife and he accentuated the possessive pronoun as had he had but one was to me very dear when i lost her i thought at first there was nothing left me but with time i grew to believe my life might still be livable it is easy for you to understand that in my misfortune i was not dogmatic i knew that no one is perfect and i felt that if my wife had seemed perfection to me it was because we understood and loved one another and then too as the years passed i found my solitude very tedious i was it is true no longer young but i was not what the world has agreed to call old and i thought that among the gracious women whom i knew it might be possible for me to find one who would consent to dispel the solitude and who might perhaps be able to bring me some semblance of my former happiness it was under these conditions that i met you you remember what followed i saw that you were beautiful more so indeed than my wife and i imagined that you were honest and self-respecting in fact a girl destined to become a noble woman it was then that i ventured to address you you told me of your poverty i begged you to share the money which was mine you told me that you did not love me i answered that i would wait i was glad to share the money with you i was willing to wait i knew that you would adorn riches i believed that i could win your love and i felt that the winning would be pleasant i even admired you for the agreement which you suggested i thought it could not come from anyone not wholly refined and mistress of herself in short believing in your frankness i offered you what i had to give in return what did i ask the opportunity to be with you the opportunity of winning your affection and therewith a little trust a little confidence and the proper keeping of my name 
Surely I was not extravagant in my demands, and you, for all your frankness, omitted to tell me the one thing essential. You omitted to tell me. Do not say it, the girl wailed. Do not say it. The tears were falling. Her form was rocked with sobs. She was piteous before him, who knew not what pity was. He had risen, and she crouched as though she feared he had risen to strike her. Of your lover, whom I caught tonight, cheating at cards. He had struck her indeed. She looked up through her tears, astonished at the novelty of the blow, and yet still she did not seem to understand. She stared at him vacantly, as though uncertain of the import of his words. Of your lover, he repeated, the blackleg. She rose from her seat. She was trembling from head to foot. To support herself she stretched a hand to the mantel, and clutching it she steadied herself, and then, still looking him in the face, she said huskily, You tell me Lennox Lee cheated at cards? It is not true. He is your lover, then, hissed Incool, and into his green, dilated eyes there came a look of such hideous hate that the girl shrank back. In her fear she held out her arms as though to shield herself from him, and screamed aloud, "'You're going to kill me!' she cried. "'Be quiet,' he answered. "'You will wake the house.' But the order was needless. The girl fell backwards on the lounge. He stood and looked at her without moving. Presently she moaned. Her eyes opened and her sobs broke out afresh, and still he gazed as though in the enjoyment of a hope fulfilled. Now get to your bed, he said at last. His eyes searched the room. On a table was a pink box labeled bromide of potassium, and filled with powders wrapped in tin foil. He opened and smelled of one, and then opened another, and poured the contents of both into a glass which he half filled with water. Drink it, he said. She obeyed dumbly. The tears fell into the glass as she drank. But in a little while her sobs came only intermittently. I will sleep now, she murmured helplessly. I think I will sleep now. And yet still he waited. Her head had fallen far back on the sofa. Her hair drooped about her shoulders. Her lips were gray. He took her in his arms and carried her to the bed. One of her furred slippers dropped on the way. The other he took from her. The foot it held hardly filled his palm. He loosened her gown. He would have taken it off, but he feared to awake her. Was she really asleep, he wondered. He peered down at her eyelids, but they did not move. Surely she slept. A door that led to a dressing-room was open. He closed it. The chair in which she had sat he restored to its original position. And then he turned out the gas. On each of the fixtures his fingers rested the fraction of a minute longer than was necessary. He groped to the door, opened it noiselessly, and listened. There was no sound. The house was still as a tomb. He closed the door behind him, and drawing the nameless instrument from his pocket, he inserted it carefully in the keyhole, gave it a quick turn, and went to his room. End of chapter 17